Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. I feel the sky come tumbling down. I feel my heart start to tremble whenever the Stick to Wrestling podcast starts. I want to thank Carol King for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Now, before I get rolling, I want to say that for the first time ever here at Stick to Wrestling headquarters in Nashua, New Hampshire, we do have a live studio audience. Let's hear it, guys. No, I know. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And I also want to thank Stephen Roffel and Jesus Salas Rodriguez for their generous contributions to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. If you would like to donate to the only Brawbone and Wicked Good podcast out there, um, I take PayPal at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. Uh, thank you once again, Stephen Jesus. And I want to bring in a guest. It's been way too long since I've had him on. Let's hear it for Mike Sempervivi. Oh, come on, guys. You can do better than that. Even though it's a, a little bit of a paltry bunch, you can bring it up. Get more excited here, please. You're not listening. Uh. <laughs> we have a special mailbag episode of Stick to Wrestling. Uh, I mean, they're all my favorite episodes, but I, I really like doing this one because we're talking about things that at least one person really wants to know. Mike, you are the guest, so you start with the first question. Uh, let us see here. Dan Potts, what promotion do you wish had gotten the AWA's time slot on ESPN? And I believe that would be, as I'm adding this here, what, 1986, early 1986, late 85? It would be late 1985. I believe AWA started September 85. I could be off by a month or so. Hmm. That's an interesting one, because if you look at the promotions that were around then, and I know AWA, and in retrospect, and with 2020 Vision on, they were really slumping badly during this time, even though a lot of names were, familiar names were still there. But for me, at least, I, I think the answer is obvious, and that would be Mid-South at that point, would be who I would say fit would, would fit the best on ESPN and would have lasted the longest and fit there the best. I will also say Mid-South Wrestling. Um, I mean, it really could have been a a big one for Mid-South. I mean, they could have stayed open a lot longer had they had that national exposure. And I, I really, truly think, Mike, that despite the AWA, at least at first, having Sergeant Slaughter, Stan Hansen, the Road Warriors, the Freebirds, etc., I think Mid-South Wrestling would have done way better rating, ratings-wise than the AWA did. I believe so too. And in the in the long run for sure. You know, obviously you don't have the road warriors there and there's going to be an education process that needed to kind of move forward there with who was still there at the time. Let's see, you know, you're moving into 86, so you're past the nightmare phase and all that sort of stuff and you're moving into their time where they're going to be in the UWF. So there needs to be an education on a Ted DiBiase or a 
somebody like that. But Dr. Death Steve Williams, what a perfect person. We're not that many years removed from the USFL ending and this guy that played for the New Jersey Generals and this guy who was a big eight All-American in both football and uh, wrestling. You know, he would have been a natural to kind of be there on ESPN. So it wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have had a lot of that flash because obviously, you know, Mid-South and the AWA and some of the people that Vern had at the time, it would have been a little bit different. But I just think the vibe and the feel, I mean, heavens, Ted DiBiase, the one-man gang, Akbar's army, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then leading into the Freebirds coming in and all that, I, I that was a little bit later on. But I think once that exodus from Dallas would have happened... I think they would have been able to survive a little bit more because obviously anything that they attention they were getting from ESPN or any money that they could have extracted out of ESPN, you know, it would not have made up for all of the uh, issues that they had regionally trying to draw and the oil crisis and all that sort of stuff. But it still would have been, you know, a, a little something to counterbalance that. Well, a couple of things. Um, when Watts was on WTBS on Sundays earlier in 1985, it immediately be- became the highest rated uh, show on WTBS. And the Braves weren't playing yet. But, I mean, people got immediately hooked on Mid-South Wrestling. I think that would have happened uh, again on ESPN. And getting on national television would have given Watts at least a path to get to pay-per-view. And that's where the big money was, eventually was in wrestling. So if he could have partnered with ESPN and, you know, had a national pay-per-view, you know, maybe summer of 86, I don't know. But at, at some point, that was the key to staying alive. And without that national exposure, I mean, Watts was a dead man walking. Absolutely. And, you know, Jim Ross... On ESPN, being that voice as opposed to a Ken Resnick or a Rod Trongard or somebody like that, that excitement that would get whipped up. And I think anybody that sees a Mid-South show for the first time, how it begins, how those shows end hot, how they begin hot, usually with what took place the week prior, it was it's a it was a great show. It was an absolutely great show. And obviously they lost, you know, some luster as 86 rolled on and obviously in 87. But like you mentioned, if they would have been on there, we wouldn't have had that situation happen. And they could have limped into when was I mean, when was the last AWA show on ESPN 1990? You know, and they, yeah. I would assume that, you know, Bill Watts and again, his aggressiveness and, and his eye and his idea of where the business was, you know, would have obviously worked out a lot better than what happened with Vern. Well, look at it this way. When the when Mid-South was on WTBS, they ran the best-dressed man in, in Mid-South angle, which was phenomenal. And it was the kind of television where you couldn't wait to see what what happened next week. You know, okay, they're they're going to electronically monitor the cheering for Ted DiBiase and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And then they give you this unbelievable payoff when Ted DiBiase bashes in Jim Duggan's uh, windshield with a bat. And it was wonderful because... Because there was a reason why Teddy Biasi was out in the parking lot with a baseball bat. It all made sense. Absolutely. And that's not only, you know, are the angles and some of that stuff, it's just goofy enough to keep the eyeballs on it and keep the entertainment value up. But you see the people involved. And think about a Hacksaw Duggan and a DiBiase and a Williams and all these other guys banging away the sheep herders. You know, all these guys, to me, it would have been tailor-made for ESPN, especially at that time where 
Australian rules football still was one of the things that helped rule ESPN. And there were all of these other kind of sideshows, your roller derbies, your things like that, where I'm not saying that these guys would have become much larger than life characters, but it's interesting to think about, you know, exactly if they would have done this, how the magazines would have covered them, how much attention they may have actually gotten being on ESPN. And one other thing, what if now Watts and uh, Fritz von Erich weren't partners, but they were close allies in late 1985? I mean, you know, what if you could get at least on a, a temporary basis, the von Erichs and Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams? Oh, man. Yeah. Which, you know, and they they would dip in and out of there, you know, before before all that and everything, you know, kind of fell apart. And, you know, world class was one I was thinking of. It's just, unfortunately, by the time late 85 rolls around, you know, the, the bloom is already off the rose. And while production-wise, it probably would have made a lot of sense. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Legends of World Class shows ended up ultimately airing on ESPN at some point. Um, I could be hallucinating that. You know, it may have aired on... No, regular World Class was on, yeah, too. Reg- so, yeah, so it did, that's right. It did end up actually on there. So, you know, I... Again, when you Florida was in bad shape at the time yes. with Wahoo there and everything, Portland wouldn't have been an option. You look at the other shows that ultimately ended up on uh, uh, Financial News Network score, you know, a little bit later on, and you look at what was left, and it's like, what would have been a fit? Sure, Memphis would have been more entertaining, maybe, but does it, to me, I can't see them on ESPN at four o'clock in the afternoon or at 11 o'clock at night or whenever it was. I can't remember. I know the times varied all over the place for when sometimes they would air the show, but it's, you know, it's just hard for me to believe it's, it's not the UWF, especially again, with that roster there too of, you know, and it it asks, you have questions. Does Kamala, you know, is there more of a push to make him a full-time guy instead of letting him go to Vince? And there's a lot of things that obviously, you know, change there, you know, at, at that point, if they are on ESPN and some of the leverage that a Watts would have, you'd still have to work for Bill Watts. You'd still have to go make those runs. But does Jake Roberts think a little bit differently? Because obviously how what he was thinking as a member of, of uh, the booking, you know, helping out booking when he was in Georgia, and then, you know, he leaves there, he goes to Mid-South, and then, you know, he throws his hands up and ends up in the WWF in 86. What if they have national TV? You know, what does he possibly stay? Is he Again, so there's a lot of things that, that, that could have played out there if that would have happened. But I, for me, it's not even a question. It's got to be Mid-South. Yeah, if it was September 1985, uh, World Class would have had a a good argument. But we all know what happened with World Class. It was like you know they that promotion kind of hit a wall at the Cotton Bowl in 1985 and it just never got back up again. And you we would have the situation too. You know, if he, you obviously if you brought the Von Erickson, that may have just everything would have remained the same too, because at some point Fritz is looking at his boys and it's a, why aren't they champions on your show on national TV? And obviously Bill Watts had his own ideas and his own guys there and his own guys. He was trying to push up. Plus you had your Dick Slaters and Buzz Sawyer would be coming in from Crockett, uh, you know, around that time that, that same time as well too. So it's like, you start looking at the pieces, it would have been, Again, it it was it would have been exactly what it was, a wild manly man promotion with the Slaters and all that stuff. But you did have Terry Taylor. You had 
obviously Eddie Gilbert on the other side of that ledger. But, you know, would Butch Reed have stayed around, not ended up venturing to Kansas City and then ultimately the WWF? It's interesting to, to, to wonder what would have happened there. What would the ascensions of Rick Steiner and Sting have been like since, you know, they, they were obviously we know what happened with them. But, you know, it's just it's a, it really is interesting to think about. Yeah, here's something else I want to throw at you. Let's say, you know, we we have this alliance with Fritz and Fritz, you know, if Fritz is willing to come to an accord where you're happy with Kerry Von Erich as your UWF World Heavyweight Champion, I mean, that's something I would really think about. You know, this is obviously before the motorcycle wreck, but, you know, Kerry was a brighter star than anyone on Watts roster in 1985. That's true. Absolutely, that's true. Uh, but then it's okay, even if Watts is for that. Boy, you know, you still got to make tally. They, they, boy, can you imagine? I don't know. I don't know. That's interesting. That's it. I mean, it would be a you know things would have been very different from that moment forward. It would have changed a lot if if Watts had gotten gotten a a national on national cable way earlier. And it, yeah, boy, you know, it's just what it that and if it kicks and it works, obviously the whole area went down. But it, it one thing you had, you got to think about too is how many of those matchups we had seen before, and I guess by that point. You know, the the only concern would be local. For a lot of people all over national TV, a lot of that stuff would have been brand new with the the Freebirds and the Von Erichs. And again, that exodus that came over, maybe that wouldn't have happened. But it's hard to have seen Fritz because of the way his mindset was and ultimately what he did with the NWA and all that other stuff. You know, I just, boy, it's hard to see those two working together at that time for too long with stakes being that high. That that's actually a really good point. I mean, you know, someone had to be in charge, and unless Fritz got a really big percentage and a, a say, a say, not complete say, but a say on how things went on. I mean, you're right. The Carrie and Kevin and Mike and whoever else weren't leaving Dallas. All right, I, I got a question from Kevin Elias, and just kind of an anecdote I want to share. Do you miss tape trading? Or are you happy to never have? Will you, would you happy to never touch a VHS tape ever again? Um, Mike, were you much into tra- tape trading back in the I day? I was not at all. Believe it or not, I okay. was not at all. Yeah, I was into it just because I wanted to see all of the wrestling I grew up reading about. But Kevin, about a year ago, I was transferring something from VHS to DVD. And I heard the the tape ended, and I heard that little like that, that clock noise, and it started rewinding. And I was like, "Oh my! This used to be the soundtrack to my life. I would hear this noise all day, every day, and I hadn't heard it for like uh, five, ten years. So it it was quite the you know back back to the past, as they say. Well, do those kids used to know that they actually used to sell a whole separate machine that would rewind your tapes for you so you wouldn't get fined when you took them back to Errol's or Blockbuster or whatever the Hollywood video, wherever you took it at the time? But these kids don't know that today. 
<laughs> they don't. And the reason I had one of those is because I had read that if you rewind tapes too many times, it messes up the the motor on your VCR. So get one of these for six bucks and you won't have to worry That's, about yeah, that. Yeah, I remember hearing that about pausing recordings and uh, slow motion and fast forward and all that sort of stuff, too. It's got to be careful with those things. But uh, now you can't find them anywhere anymore. Very <laughs> no, you can't. And I, I mean, I remember when no one had a VCR because they were too expensive and new, and now no one has them because they're they're part of history. <laughs> Good. I, I I used to go down. I used to live in Manchester, New Hampshire, and there was not like a BJ's wholesale club in Manchester, so I had to go to Concord or Nashua or Salem, and I would fill up the cart with as many VHS tapes as you could find as as I could get in the cart, and I would always astound the cashier. And my car, which had a big hatchback in the back, would be completely full of nothing but blank videotapes. This would happen about once a month. Boy, I'm happy that VHS ended up being the thing that to to take hold instead of beta because my god the cost of those beta tapes the cost of beta tapes now for anybody that yeah. <laughs> that, that knows i mean they're they're ridiculous uh i'm gonna actually go down the list a little bit and i'm gonna go sure. to and i'm I'm sorry if i butcher your name sir tim t troll t troll t troll we're gonna go with that if sure. sergeant slaughter had not left the wwf in 1984 what role would he have had in the company with JYD becoming the number two babyface and a lack of foreign heels for him to feud with? Now, I will say this. There is never a lack of foreign heels when you can create as many foreign heels as you like. And I do know that Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik ended up being tied up with the tag championships and all that sort of stuff. But you could always have a Kamala. You could always have a somebody that came in to always have in your pocket for the All-American Sergeant Slaughter, especially at that time, throughout the 80s, for him to feud with. And I think if that doesn't happen, then it's very simple. He's just like a JYD, maybe a little lower. He's just like a Hillbilly Jim. He's one of those guys that's going to be broken out there. When the Hulkster needs some help, there's his help. But, uh, you know, if he wasn't doing that, feuds against Bob Orton Jr. and Piper, you know, guys he's worked with in the past, feuds against a Morocco or somebody like that to bide the time with, you could always have done something like that. You could have even given him a tag team partner as well, too. It looked like they were going to do that at one point with Terry Daniels, but he ended up just being used as the flag bearer to get kicked in the crotch by the Iron Sheik. But but you could have done something like that as well, too. So I think... With Slaughter, he would have sold a ton of merchandise. He would have sold, again, all of that stuff, all the things that they fought over with his likenesses and all that stuff. If all that stuff goes to the side, he's one of those characters, along with JYD and everybody else, Stud and Andre at the very beginning, that you have all of this stuff that you could sell. So I think he would have been in a very good position. Now, from a wrestling point of view, eh, most of the time nobody was with the WWF, but he was a big athletic guy who had a career that crossed a lot of paths and he'd worked with a lot of people. So I don't think it would have been an issue. Now, here's the thing. I've said this before. I don't know if I said it on Stick to Wrestling. I think if if the WWF keeps Sergeant Slaughter, they can't just – 
hand him, you know, forest, foreign, foreign menace of the month every single month. He couldn't be doing that constantly. Like right after, I mean, the Iron Sheik feud was hot. And then when Nikolai Volkov came in, it was like, okay, it felt like, all right, we've already done this. He's already defeated the evil foreign menace. Now we've got another one. I mean, it, it, it to me at least, it looked a little bit forced. And I think you would have had to have slaughter in more, you know, uh, more typical feuds, like feuding with Greg Valentine for the Intercontinental Another Championship, great something yeah. like that. And every couple of years, have evil far- foreign menace come in and Sergeant Slaughter takes care Absolutely. of him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that, again, he was so versatile. And I don't, you know, some people, again, I obviously am partial to him because of, of his work in Crockett. And then, you know, so I... I his ability to be able to work with a lot of these guys, I think gets kind of glossed over because uh, you know, people don't think of, you know, Sergeant Slaughter as a great worker. And I'm not saying he was great, but he was very good. And like he, he was well, great at times. Time, again, especially for somebody who was that big, especially when he was younger. So to see him in there with guys he may have crossed paths with way back in the AWA, or like you mentioned, a Valentine or a Morocco or an Orton or any of those guys. I mean, to me, it would it would have worked out just fine. And like you mentioned, even if you didn't do a foreign uh, menace every month or even every couple of months, he, he could have done a bunch of other things and you could have sold, obviously, a ton of merchandise, which mattered, obviously. It matters at all times, but certainly mattered back then. Yeah, and you also have the option of eventually doing with him what they did in 1990. I mean, a Sergeant Slaughter turn would have been huge. And you didn't have, I mean, with Hogan, you did, you, you ultimately had it, but it wasn't the same as what happened with Bruno. And who knows, maybe Hillbilly Jim, that was the intention where they're seeing it in their mind, big Hillbilly, be Hulk's friend later on down the line, turn them like everybody always turns on Strongbow and everybody always turns on Bruno. You absolutely could have done that. Have him turn on a Tito Santana. Sergeant Slaughter's fed up. I'm sick of this. I've been the one, you know, I'm the American hero. I'm the Marine. You're cheering this guy flying a flag who's just talking about saying prayers and eating vitamins. You absolutely could have done that. And obviously, you know, it probably would have had a hell of a lot more impact than it did, you know, in 1991 or when in 1990 when they did 1991. Yeah, and they were definitely playing off real-life events, which uh, parts of it were a lot of fun, parts of it just weren't. But anyway, Mark Matsuo asks, when did JCP jump the shark? Mike, what do you think? What, what, which, which, which era of it? <laughs> you know, for me, the writing ended up on the wall. It never felt the same after Magnum's wreck. And I know everybody says that, but 87, there was a lot of good stuff that happened, but it, oh, it started to feel weird. And I think if you ask somebody who's a little bit of an older Crockett fan, they would have said the writing was on the wall in 86. I don't, I don't look at it that way. I I don't, I, I think really it was 87 Magnum's crash. Everything got weird. Things were not you know the the battle with the WWE obviously was at a, a different phase then. It didn't you know hit the, the absolute poops until the Starcade situation and the bunkhouse stampede. But as the year went on, as they introduced guys in from Florida, as they introduced you know they bought the UWF and things just felt 
scattershot and weird. And I really look at that and I know people, well, they made, they did good things in 87 and man, Dusty had it coming back in 88 and things got, okay. I'm not going to debate anybody on some of that stuff. You know, certainly not on this show. We don't have the time for it today, but for me, it absolutely was, it was, was 87. For for me, it was 87. I can be actually a little uh, – I can be more specific. I mean in, in 87, the buildup for Starcade 87 was terrible, and Ron Garvin, I respect the guy. I thought he was good enough to be world champion. He just didn't get the right push prior to becoming world's champion. So, yeah, the entire buildup to Starcade 87 was – you know. The whole time it felt like, okay, this company is in trouble, and look how far they've fallen in just a year. And I was a Baltimore guy, so I mean, we we go, went to Baltimore since '84. So Ronnie Garvin was a star, and we loved Ronnie. I liked Ronnie Garvin a lot. You know, he was one of my my favorites. Then you, know, you put him on the list, and he's right there. He was a believable guy. You know, he was just this old crusty, you know, kind of guy. And it was it felt then it was a couple years too late. It's like, you know, if you would have done that in 85 or 86, it really wouldn't have worked. But you had more of an excuse at the time, you know, with Ronnie's uh, always being on Georgia TV. If you would have done it in 85, if you would have done it in 80s. I mean, there are times where you would have done it and it would have made been more believable and had more, you know, more behind it. And then not it's just everything about that, how they built him up, how he looked after that, the whole nine yards the lead in into the the rematch was terrible. It just, it didn't hum. And it was, boy, the writing was certainly on the wall there. And it was nailed even further with the the bunkhouse stampede in January. It's like, you're going to Nassau of all places. You're doing this, you're doing that. And I know there's people that will talk about 88 and talk about some of the good things, but it's hard to gloss over all the negatives that ultimately ended up leading to the sale and, and, and booking wise and some of the problems that they had. I mean, you just look at dusty roads, in 1984, you know, and how he sounds, what he looks like, all that sort of stuff. And you see it in 88 at the end. And it's like, whew, you know, the, the road will own you. And that he, he was done. He was done by then. I mean, he looked done, but then again, he had, he had a heck of a run in the WWF in uh, 1989 and 1990. And I, I could have told you, I never would have seen that coming that, you know, a, uh, I could see Vince not signing Dusty just out of spite, but he did it anyway. And Dusty came in and played ball. I will go to my grave saying that, you know, the polka dots and Sapphire and, and those skits were all were all there to put him in his place. Hallelujah. But, yeah. But when, you know, when it came right down to it, he got a, a big main event feud against Big Boss Man and then uh, a main again, uh, main event feud against Randy Savage that went to the that main event, the major arenas. And the red, when the red light was on, Dusty was going to be Dusty and you couldn't, you know, Vince could not control how the crowd was going to respond to Dusty. You know, the only thing you could do is go, well, you know, he's he's getting this reaction in this tie-dye shirt, maybe it's time for these polka dots and maybe it's time for Sapphire and maybe it's time for all of these other things. And he wanted to make sure that he knew who the boss was and he drilled that home to Dusty many times. Absolutely. Dusty, you know, Dusty might have bossed the other guys around in the locker room, but he was clearly, Vince was the man in charge. Vince was not Crockett. No, he was no, he was not, and he was not his father either. So let's see here. Boy, you know, this is interesting from, from Scott Cornish. 
Have you ever denied being a wrestling fan to someone? And if so, why? I don't think I have. Other than maybe if somebody had a specific question about something I didn't know him and I just blew him off. But wrestling is, I was such a fan of wrestling. My whole family knew it. All my friends knew it. Everybody kind of knew it. So I would always eat it. I may like get, well, it's a male soap opera or whatever I would need to say to maybe get out of that conversation. But I've always copped to being a pro wrestling fan. I have. My, my answer is the complete opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I would go to great lengths to either deny or undermine my wrestling fandom. Like, for example, if I knew, and this is like high school years, if I knew like my girlfriend was coming over, I would hide the wrestling magazines. And I mean, really hide them. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've told the story on the show before. I would go to a different town just to buy wrestling magazines and make sure I brought them home in a gym bag. I mean, because it was, it, it had a, a negative connotation. And, you know, for someone, for anyone who's self-conscious, you know what it's like growing up. I mean, these kids will jump on you for anything. So I just made me, uh, totally undermined it. Well, for me, what helped for, for me at least is growing up during the Hogan Hulkamania boom era, because I became a fan. Well, really uh, that time. I mean, you know, I was six years old in 1982 and Hulkamania was already, you know, starting to blow up in Rocky three and, and the AWA and all that sort of stuff. So by the time 85 rolled around, you know, I'm nine years old, 86, I'm 10 years old. There were a lot of kids, you know, watching wrestling and were involved in, in, in watching the WWF or watching the NWA or, you know, the, the, at least in my area, we ended up having so many options. And then obviously the boom of syndication and UHF channels and all that stuff in the 80s, it was cheap programming and we got multiples of it. So there were a lot of wrestling fans that I had around me. So I was lucky that way, too. Even girls, you know, into the time I was in middle school, into the 80s, uh, it, it, that was always the same case. Now, when it started to atrophy a little bit in the early 90s, but then by that time, I had gotten into high school, so my attention to wrestling was not as I wasn't as fixated on it as much because of sports and education and girls and partying and everything else that would be going on at that time and meeting new people and doing new things, having a car or I didn't have a car, but other people had cars and things like that. So if there was anything negative, then I missed it. And by the time, you know, I got a little bit older, you know how to deflect all those questions when somebody busts balls or wants to bust balls or, or any of that sort of stuff. So knock on wood, I've been very lucky. Now, there are probably times maybe I should have not have admitted it or something like that, but I never got lit up too badly to my face, at least. I, I think it, it, that that just like that 10 years or so makes a big difference because before Vince McMahon took Hulkamania and everything else uh, national, and he brought out his version of what pro wrestling was, I mean, it was considered kind of low-rent entertainment, uh, almost kind of scuzzy entertainment yeah. in a way. And you know, once Vince kind of got rid of a lot of that, and by the by the time uh, the Monday Night Wars broke out, you know, it was cool to be a wrestling fan. I mean, you you couldn't go anywhere without seeing someone in a wrestling shirt. Let's see here. Aaron Minek. Was I the only one who enjoyed the Global Wrestling Federation? Aaron, you were not the only one who enjoyed the Global Wrestling Federation. In fact, there was a response uh, by Nicholas Koliadis, 
who said that, nope, I used to rush home through my math homework so I could watch it at 4 p.m. on ESPN. By then, my mom gave up trying to ban wrestling from her household. And I think that's the reason there are so many people that actually remember the GWF and would actually say that they enjoyed it because they were a kid who was rushing home from school and right there on ESPN, they saw some wrestling. And it may not have been big stars in the NWA and the WWF, but it was stuff they may have never seen before with the Lightning Kid and Jerry Lynn. There were, you know, names that people had known from before, uh, as well as, you know, your your Embrys and your your guys like that. So I I I I remember watching it and it was like, okay, cool. I made it part of the, the, the rotation and I would watch it, but it wasn't really that big of a deal to me. But I'm sure there was a lot of kids who, again, were a little bit younger than me where, yeah, I mean, that was instead of watching cartoons or in, you know, as part of the package of watching cartoons, the same way it was for me growing up a little bit earlier on where you had Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling on at nine and then a battery of wrestling that begins at 10 a.m., well, it's a, sure, it's the same way for a lot of kids who grew up then before they watched, you know, DuckTales or, or the Animaniacs or whatever was on at the time. You know, they were checking out GWF. I'm going to combine questions a little bit because Connor McGrath asked out of all of the promotions that started in 90 slash 91, GWF, Herb Abrams, UWF and Gordon Scazzari's AWF, which one did you think had the best chance of being a solid competitor to WWF and WCW? I thought by far it was uh, Joe Pedicino's GWF because Pedicino, you know, he got his ESPN time slot. He knew the wrestling business. He knew the television business. And supposedly he had a $20 million line of credit from a Nigerian guy named Oli Oliami. <laughs> no uh, known relation to Oli Oli Anderson. But, you know, if he's got the money and he's been in wrestling for a while, I thought he by far had the best chance. I mean, both Gordon Scazzari and Herb Abrams were guys who just had no idea what they were doing. I mean, at least Abrams had some money. But, you know, they were just guys who wanted to put on wrestling. Pedicino seemed to have a vision. But when I'll just never forget the time I heard, you know, we're all excited. I mean, we've got this new show on ESPN that's promising. It's got Eddie Gilbert. It's got Cactus Jack. It's got the Lightning Kid. You know, it's got some good stuff. And then I hear that they're not flying in guys anymore. I'm like, well, it's USWA again, and it's never going to be more than that. And that's when that kind of jumped the shark for me. Yeah, and I of of any of those promotions, even ones a little bit earlier and a little bit later, I don't know how it's not Joe for the reasons that you just mentioned because he did have wrestling knowledge, he had television knowledge, he had a vision, he knew what was good, and I'm not trying to bash. Gordon Scazzari, but he was a kid that got inheritance. Herb Abrams is a story that has been told enough times. Everybody knows what that is. So, and nobody else, I mean, who else would have had, you know, the, the, the oomph to do something there? So I, who else did he had when it was Jody Hamilton? I mean, there were people also involved in the GWF too, where there were wrestling people that had, you know, some idea of trying to develop talent and maybe doing something. I there's no question. I don't know who else it could have been if it was not the GWF. 
No, and and like I said, you know, as soon as you know they were flying in guys like Jim Cornette, they were flying in Terry Gordy, and it looked like you know they were going to make a run for it, and then all of a sudden I hear they're not flying guys in any, anymore. It was just USWA again with a, a little bit of a paint job, and that's about it. But I mean, I, I liked it at first. I guess that's the way I, I should answer the question. But as time went on, I mean, for me, it became unwatchable. If, if someone else liked it, great. I'm, you know, it just wasn't my yeah, thing. Yeah, and that's, you know, it just it atrophied quickly. <laughs> and then the replays happened and the reruns over and over again ad nauseum and all that sort of stuff. So here's an interesting one. And this is, I don't know how to think about this. Josh Walton, if Barry Windham... By the way, was it my time to ask a question? There it was. Was it? Wasn't? I'm not sure. I'm sorry if I if I jumped on you. Uh, it is your show, but here I go, Josh Walton. <laughs> no, I uh, I ran in with Connor's question, so it is your turn. Fair sir. enough. All right. If Barry Windham had not jumped in early 1989 to become the Widowmaker, I was the only one who actually kind of liked that nickname. Thought it was kind of cool. I, I know. I know. I, I, I like the nickname. I wish he would have been Barry, you know, the Widowmaker, Barry Windham, instead of just the the Widowmaker. Yes, but look, what what could you have seen him doing the rest of the year for the NWA? I think that answer is obvious. It would be be in the title picture, and Ric Flair certainly with he was never going to take a back seat. Fans were never going to let him take a back seat. So even if you want to try to downplay flair down a little bit there, he still would have been around. Now, Barry Windham was a heel. You had Lex Luger was a babyface, If I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken at that point, sting, obviously Ron Simmons on the come up. There were plenty of people that Barry Windham, I think would have worked for. And if he was as a heel, which I assumed he would have remained, all of those guys, your your Steve, anybody that would have been left there at the time, Barry Windham would have been in the NWA World Championship title picture and trying to bring along guys like Ron Simmons and like Sting and like, you know, some of those other guys, you know, okay, is a little I, bit I better. I know exactly what I would have done with Barry Windham in 1989. Okay, you had him lose the U.S. title to Lex Luger at Chi-Town, which was in February. In May, Ric Flair lose, uh, wins, regains the NWA championship back from Ricky Steamboat. Uh, you have to figure out a way to keep Barry a little bit busy in those three months. Now, he was out for like six weeks getting uh, surgery on his hand. So right there, now you're down to like six weeks. Try to send him to Japan or something, or just don't give him a program until you get to the Nashville show. What was it? Wrestle War 89, right? Rick Flair yeah, turns yes. babyface. You have Barry Windham say, "Rick, we are horsemen. I am. I have your back, no matter no matter what." Rick Flair befriends Sting. He befriends, befriends Brian, <laughs> Brian Pillman. Excuse me. You have Windham come out when he's with Sting, and Windham says, "Rick." Me and Sting have had our battles, but if he's with you, he's fine with me. Do the same thing with Pillman. Clash of the Champions. Have Terry Funk and Great Muda against Ric Flair and Sting, except Barry Windham comes out and he's like, no, this is my responsibility to be your partner. We're horsemen. Sting, if you don't mind, step aside. 
And then during that match, he 1980s Greg Valentine. Uh, he does what Greg Valentine did to Ric Flair, either late 79, early 80, just completely turn on him. And you've got to do something big. You can't just leave him laying. You've got to do what Greg Valentine did, didn't break his nose. So now you've got a heel stable of Wyndham, Luger, uh, Terry Funk, and Great Muda against all of the baby faces you mentioned. That's a heck of a roster. Yeah, I didn't think about it from that aspect. A JTEX corporation that Barry Wyndham would have fit in perfectly, certainly a lot better than a Buzz Sawyer or somebody like that. Barry Wyndham alongside, yeah, Terry Funk and anybody, and, and Muda and Gary Hart, absolutely. And again, Barry Wyndham never had that NWA World Championship. Yeah, no, run. and he was worthy of it. I mean, he was absolutely one of the best in-ring wrestlers yeah. of the late 80s. And yeah, I mean, I, I've said before, you know, if you had handed me the NWA book in 1989, I would have been like, okay, this promotion is going to be based at least for a year or so on Babyface Ric Flair and Babyface Sting versus Heel Lex Luger and Heel Barry Wyndham. And you think of him, even if he's filling time against babyface Rick Steiner, or what I see, Rick Steiner, was he, let's say, yeah, it was babyface or Rick Steiner. You got Scott Steiner coming in. You have Eddie Gilbert there. So him as a heel against any of those guys, it's, it is really interesting to think about as that year continues on, how valuable he could have been, including teaming with somebody against the babyface Midnight Express and giving the Midnight Express somebody to work with, you know, not obviously Barry and oh. Al Perez, but you give Barry somebody else and you put him in that tag team title picture again, anywhere, just having Barry Windham there, as long as he's motivated, even if and he's not motivated, he has great matches, but if you keep his brain into it and you have him as a heel with flair where he finally wins the title, goes on a little run that way, there are so many things you could have done, including flipping him back baby face, and he's out there with Terry Funk. And again, there's a lot you could have did with him, and it was it's sad the trajectory at times his career has taken because there will always be a lot of us that always look at it and go, that guy should have been a world champion. Forget about, you know, later on, whatever designations that he got international titles or the NBA title at the time with what it meant, you know, he would have had one in the moment. No, that I, really I completely agree. I mean, in, at the end of 1989, Barry Windham absolutely looked like the future of that promotion. And when he went, to the WWF, the first thing I, I noticed when I saw him was, wow, Barry is a lot bigger than he was when he was in the NWA. And I'm like, okay, you know, you could have a Hulk Hogan versus Bar uh, the Widowmaker Barry Windham as a pay-per-view main event. Maybe not WrestleMania, but, you know, SummerSlam, why not? Absolutely. Oh, God, absolutely. And again, he could work his ass off. I mean, again, I... He, but he didn't have to cut promos. And I remember some of the promos that he cut, you know, on the, the, the screen and everything. I, I remember those and they, you know, they were WWF style promos, but he was still Barry Windham. And sure, okay, work more like Blackjack. Okay, work more like your dad. Be more brutal. Be more this. Okay, that's fine. But when it would have gotten right down to it, how I can't believe they would not have done a Hogan Windham feud just because of how good he could have made Hogan look. And the fact that, you know, Barry. I never have gotten the impression that, you know, carrying around a belt in a suitcase would have been anything he would have cared about anyway, more than making money and 
It was easy it to was, make money. I remember, I think it was late summer 1989. Barry was one of my favorite wrestlers, and I had high hopes for him. And I was watching primetime wrestling, and he went to a 20-minute draw against Tito Santana. And I was like, you know, nothing against Tito. Just Tito was no longer a top guy. And if you're not getting past him on television, they don't have plans for you. And it was like, you know, just hit me like a, you know, like a ton of bricks. They have no plans for Barry. That sucks. <laughs> that sucks. His his career is always again. Part of it was his own thing, but just you, you imagine if he never leaves Crockett in '84 and and the dominoes mm-hmm. that fall there, you know, and everything that happens, whether it be Wahoo or Magnum or this person or that person, when you start really looking at it, and that's you know they got lucky, and that was the one thing too when they when Magnum did go down, it was nice to see Barry come back in. They had that stopgap with Brian. Uh, with Brad Armstrong for a little while, but it was Barry Windham coming in there really went a long way and it didn't, you know, salve the wound of Magnum, but it, it did help a little bit because he was just so great. Oh God, he was so I great got against everybody. Championship wrestling from Florida on Sports Channel in nineteen eighty six. And I mean nothing against the other talents that were in Florida. But it was obvious, you know, it was a bunch of guys that the WWF and JCP just didn't want. Oh, and this guy, Barry Windham, who, what is he doing here? Like, it's in the middle of a wrestling war. Like, why doesn't Watts want this guy? Why doesn't Crockett want him? There were reasons. but And Barry was comfortable doing what he was doing, from what I understand. But, I mean, he stood out as being too good for that promotion. Yeah, was Kendall Windham the Southern champion? He was. Then? I think he was. <laughs> I, I have an opinion about Kendall Windham. And- he was so bad when they pushed him so hard in 1985. He barely had any experience. But like late 88, early 89, I noticed that Kendall had turned a corner and was becoming a, a decent professional wrestler. And he was filling out and he was tall. I mean, had Kendall not had his career interrupted by a prison sentence, um, I mean, he could have gone somewhere. Maybe. But the thing is, it's like when he unfortunately, when he came up to the NWA, remember they were doing that thing with him being a uh, an associate horseman and all that sort of stuff. Junior horseman. Yeah. I mean, it was like. Unfortunately, because of his look and because of Barry being so great and because of some of the other other talent there, once again, he was so hideously overshadowed where if he could have had five more years or four more years to get bigger and to not be seen as much and to be able to have been in a territory and just done that. By the time he did get in, because you look at him later on when he was in WCW at the very end there with with uh, Kurt Henning and his brother and uh, Bobby Duncombe Jr. It's like you see how big that dude actually is with some weight on him. So the, the longer he could have stayed away, the better off it would have been because it was just this little pug face, you know, little brother of Barry Windham who's kind of good. But he just never at least I didn't. I never got that that feel that he was going to be anything other than, you know, a Sam Houston level road bump, for, you know, for the heels to get to the bigger Do you guys. remember late 1988 or early 1989, they had Dustin Rhodes and Kendall Windham as a tag team in WCW all while Dusty and Barry were, you know, Dusty's a baby face, Barry's a heel, and they're feuding. And now you've got Barry's younger brother and Dusty's kids teaming up. The, the, the Texas Broncos, that's who they were. 
Yes. Yes, yes, because they recycled the Broncos name. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah, oh my and gosh. I, yes. I've always like there there had <laughs> to be some sort of a game plan in place there. Like, you know, that wasn't just a throwaway uh you know, squash on TV. Like they were going to do something. I, I never knew what it was, but something was up. No, and that would have been good for Dustin too, because again, for anything you said about Kendall right there at the time, he's far more experienced than Dustin was, and far more, you know, even though Dustin was a natural, Kendall was a little bit more of a natural worker. Obviously, Dustin, you know, came along quickly, but you know, imagine if he could have had that time there. Imagine again, a lot of things. If, if things were yeah. different, what it could have been. Um, like. I mean, obviously, this is right before Dusty gets punted uh, from being Booker and actually gets punted from the company. But anyway, Ian Totten last week's guest asked what do you think would have been larry zabisco's trajectory would have would have been had he not turned on bruno any thoughts on this mike i mean i know you were hmm. four but he would have been he would have lingered a little longer and then been out of there because if you don't do that he's Gurria because he, he didn't have a baby to me he he didn't have a babyface promo that would have even to me approached IC level not the time was different but he didn't have that babyface promo and i just think he would have looking the way he did i just think he would have been at at best i mean at best and I don't even believe that strongbow level of, okay, you're going to be the road bump that gets us to Bruno or Backland or whoever. But I think if that doesn't happen, I, 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 as a tag team wrestler, he probably would have been fine like a Gurria, but I just don't see him. And, and do you want to see him in Morocco more than some of the feuds that Morocco had? I mean, it's, it's, there's plenty of things he could have done. I think as a tag team wrestler and having a regular tag team partner that they built like a, you know, with him, maybe even, even if it was Greer, although he was at, at the end of his career there, I, I don't know. I don't see it. I see him being a guy that Greg Valentine would, would beat or Morocco would beat a, as you go through the names of guys who got brought in, Paul Orndorff, guys like that, they could have feuded together, but ultimately I, I just think he would have been a guy, and I don't think he would have lasted all that long. I don't think he would have lasted any really a whole hell of a lot longer than what he did, because by the you know by the time everything starts to change and he goes to Georgia, you know obviously we didn't know how much the writing was on the wall at the time for Backlund and all the changes that were being made, but there's no way I could see him being part of the WWF after '84 in that same sort of role. Uh, I, I just no I way. Mean, here's what I have in my notes: Tony Guerrilla too. I mean, which is basically what you said. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just wasted a bunch of words. I apologize. But <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I think best case scenario for Zabisco, if he never turns, would have been if you know Vince McMahon, for whatever reason, wanted to keep Bruno happy, put him in a Killer Bees type tag team. And that's that's really 
his upside as a babyface, but as, as a heel, I mean, obviously he had a career, you know, in Georgia and the AWA and in WCW. So it all worked out for him, but yeah, he was one of those guys, you know, there's an old expression in wrestling, you know, the better you are as a heel, the better you're going to be as a babyface. There are a few exceptions. And I think Larry Zabisco is one of those exceptions. He was way better as a heel. And once he turned heel, I, I just couldn't see him, pulling that off as a baby face, even though there were rumors that, you know, he was going to, his heel turn was part of, uh, was going to be part of what made him a big baby face star, but that never happened. And it might've just been a rumor. So who knows? It's just, it's so hard when you see him in Georgia and he slims down to, and it's just, he's, he's just, he's got that, he's got that face. He's got that voice. He's got a personality where it's just he's a heel. <laughs> he, he is a heel, no, you know, no matter how you cut it. Um, kind of on the the same uh, wavelength as that, as I, as I try to find it here. Where is the... Here we go. Lance O'Donnell, because as everybody or some people may know the story of Larry Zbysko getting into professional wrestling by busting through the trees at Bruno San Martino's house and basically running up on him in his backyard, uh, throwing a whole bunch of, of, I love you and you're the best and you're the greatest. How do I get into this business? And yep, Larry ended up getting into the business, but how did Bruno get ownership of Pittsburgh? And what do you know about that area? I can't seem to find a lot of info on it, aside from Vern. Was Bruno the only top star to own a territory while actively competing? Take the last one first. No, and I'm sure we're going to get to examples. John, I may have to lean on you for this. I, I know when Ace Freeman and Bruno and all that sort of stuff, I know that they sold it to Gato Mongol because I did a long interview with Newton Tatry and he talked a lot about the sale of the promotion to him, but I am not 100% sure on how Bruno actually got a position of ownership other than the fact that he was Bruno I know nothing about it other than whenever I read Pittsburgh results, um, they were always a little bit different than the, than the, the mainstream WWF results. You had guys like Johnny DeFazio, etc. On the Pittsburgh's cards, Danucci was always there. So I I know very little about it. But I, to me, to answer the question, I mean, if Bruno says, you know, hey, I'd, I'd like points in the Pittsburgh office, I mean, he's going to get it. I mean, he got uh, when he came in for his second run as WWF champion, you know, he got a deal from Vince Sr. that made the NWA promoters heads explode. They're like, you know, we can't pay our champions that much. And here you are setting a precedent. And deserved every penny of it, too. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, with DeFazio and DiNucci and, and Tony Marino and all those guys, it was just, it was his home. He got a bunch of guys there. And, and you know, and it was a it was a deceptive crossroads. And, you know, they didn't, you know, do tons. But obviously, Bruno going over to work for Bruiser, you know, and that was, you know, the Pittsburgh, you know, relatively, you know, a little bit closer, obviously, than New York or Boston to where Bruiser was working and going into Detroit and all that sort of stuff. So it was just a, it was his little piece that he could run and they could run how they did it. And it was, uh, who was it? Bill, was it Bill Cobble? That sounds right. Who was the, yeah, the, the Pittsburgh uh, TV announcer there. And it's, 
it's too bad there's a little bit that exists online. Certainly, uh, I think a couple of Bruno interviews and things like that from that era. But that's one that in Buffalo, you know, I'd love to see some some of that footage. Too bad it doesn't you know doesn't exist or is you know hiding in somebody's attic, rotting away or something like that down the the basement of some TV station or something like that. But it's some of that stuff that I would love to see actually kind of you know pop up again so we can actually see Batman Tony Marino because you know you see the stole shots of it in the magazine. And it's completely it's so ridiculous. ridiculous. I can't imagine how ridiculous it must have been, you know, taking place in that tiny studio. <laughs> Eight months pregnant, Batman Tony Marino. Good lord! But remember when he was was he Devil Blue in oh. Georgia in eighty in eighty four? I do remember, you remember that? that. Oh, it was so bad! It was so bad, everybody. And I don't even know they. I don't even know who he was supposed to be feuding with. I think he was going after Ronnie Garvin. Just remember, it's like. Ah, here's Devil Blue, Devil Blue, whatever it was, Gordon solely didn't say it right. And he's blue because that's how hot the flame burns. It's hotter than orange. It's blue. <laughs> he needed Something a ride. Like that. Whatever it was. God bless him. He was still in shape at the time, but definitely needed that mask. But, you know, I, I will actually go just to, to latch onto this here, too. Um do you have a Holy Grail of missing footage? Because I brought up the fact that, you know, I'd love to see some of this stuff. This comes from Travis Hungate. And I see Kid Zombie uh, jumped in there and had a response of July 4th, 82, Flair Backland at the Omni. That's certainly one of them. For me, for years, it was the last battle of Atlanta, which ended up making it to the really? WWE Network. Yours. They were able to find that. That would, that At the time, it was because of the magazines and the lore and all that sort of stuff. And I know there were a lot of people that were upset with it. Like that's all there was. It's like, well, you gotta, it, it, again, there was no context. They put it up and they didn't know what was happening with, with Jake Roberts and Oli and the context of why this was a big deal. You know, they just threw it up there, and then a lot of new fans saw it and went, that? Well, hey, look, things were different then, especially that feud that was going for 18 months. But I just did a show with uh, with uh, Mark Cole where we talked about the Great American Bash 85 in full. It was recorded, surely, because there's a whole... PWI video that came out, Lords of the Ring, that whole video that came out about Starcade 85 Great American Bash. We've seen the clips everywhere. I would love to see that in its entirety. I would love to see that in its entirety. I would also love to see in its entirety the Greensboro show that had Greg Valentine and Ric Flair on it. People, what show was that? It was the Road to Greensboro big final conflict show with Slaughter and Carnoodle against Steamboat and Youngblood. The semi-main event was a 45 or 60-minute draw between the U.S. champion Greg Valentine and the world champion Ric Flair. What's the one thing you'll never see on any tape, whether it be WWE or the original tape of, of everything that took place? You won't see that match, and that drives me nuts. And I know it's probably a small thing. I'm sure if we saw Flair and Valentine go 45 or 60 before, you probably saw the match that they had there, but it's kind of a principal issue for me, and I'd love to <laughs> no, see I, I feel the same way. Um, if I had to pick, I mean, I've, I've answered this before, it would be Bob Backlund versus Har uh, Ric Flair from the Omni, even though I've heard it's terrible. I just want to see for myself how terrible it was. If you wanted to take a show as my holy grail, I know they have it. I know it's out there. I know they have it. They have to release it because I was 11 years old when this happened. And, you know, people are getting older. The people who will appreciate seeing this 
you know, might not be around if you don't, if you wait too much longer to release it. But the 1976 Shea Stadium show with uh, Bruno versus Stan Hansen and everything else. And I bet the show stinks, especially by 2022. Um, you know, that's standard, but. I that is something I would want to see and I would absolutely love just reliving the nostalgia and taking in that you know Jose Gonzalez against Kevin Sullivan babyface match that went to a 20 minute draw. I'd love to see it. I'm sorry. Well, did they that wasn't what was the opening match on that show? Cuz what did they put up on the network? Was it the which one did they show on the, the, the oh, 1980 was, uh, one? They uh, okay, that's what it was. Okay, that's what it was then. Yeah, because I remember something was up there. Yeah, for me, this is going to sound dumb. And believe me, the match was nothing to care about at the time. But I always wonder if there was a camera stuck out from behind the curtain on the stage uh, at the Baltimore Arena when Hogan and Bruno faced King Kong Bundy and Gang. And that last moment that Bruno had in the WWF for the longest time, it it will always amaze me that nobody got footage of that. And it figured it, it would have already come out if WWE had it or if they had any uh, inkling on where it was. You know, there are some still shots that are, are out from it, but that's one that obviously they didn't know Bruno was quitting the, <laughs> that night. But it's, you know, I went to that show. I went to that match and yeah, believe me, I've never heard the Baltimore Arena like that. There have been very few times where it actually had rocked like that. And you could, obviously, Hogan had something to do with it, but you could do a lot of things to Bruno for that show. And I, I believe me, I know that because I saw all the fathers there popping for Bruno, including mine. And I would love to actually see that thing again. Another one, too, dumb thing, but the uh, any of the Great American Bash Triple Towers of Doom from 86. Eight, right? It would have been 88. That took place not at the Baltimore Arena, but actually had the Horsemen and Dusty because I saw one at the Cap Center with those guys and it was fun. And it was a hell of a lot better than what you would have seen with what you saw in Baltimore because of the guys that were involved in it. And I would love to see any of those randomly pop up anywhere because believe me, they were far better. And I don't know if you got one up where you were, John, but they were far better than what the place uh, in Baltimore. We, did, no, we only got one NWA show per year up here when Crockett. But, yeah, <laughs> Even then. Yeah. 87, 88, 89, that's, we got one show. I want to talk about that Baltimore show a little more. That was Bruno's only time teaming with Hulk Hogan. And coming in, I want to say people knew that it was Bruno's last match, but we knew it was supposed to be his last match. Like that was his his big send off. They didn't announce it. Um, they didn't say, hey, you know, like they did in the Meadowlands in '81. This is Bruno's last match. But everyone kind of knew. I don't want to say kind of knew. It, again, that's what was on the schedule, and Bruno held him to it this time. Like if someone flunked a drug test or got hurt, like he wasn't coming out, coming out of retirement again. Well, so I wondered, always wondered about that because I wasn't sure if they actually had tag team matches or anything that were set after that because it was just like, boom, 
Baltimore's close enough to Pittsburgh. I'm out of here. And that was it. And I wasn't smart at the time, wasn't reading newsletters or anything like that at the time. So I always wondered, you know, what was going to be after that? And did he have, to your knowledge, was that really going to be the last match? Or was that part of, okay, after this last tour, after you go around, do this, hit these big cities that we need you in, these traditional towns you've always done well in, in these battleground areas like Baltimore? You know, did they were, were any supposed to go on after that, or was that really going to be that it was for him going, that night? That was the that was the plan. That was going to be it for him that night. They're going to give him the big send off, teaming him with Hulk Hogan, and you know, but it, it's wrestling. You never know when someone's coming out of retirement. But uh, I'm pretty sure Bruno just told him, "No, this is it. Don't even bother calling me." <laughs> and then, yeah, Bruno this, had been trying to get out since 1976, and here it is, 11 yeah, years later. A, Brutal. And then, you know, ultimately everything that, that happened after that, too, where, yeah, well, you know, Bruno and Lou Albano hyping up their uh, 1-900 lines on the back of the Weston yes. magazines would, would come after that. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Chris Chenault, and we're going to, Mike, this hour has gone by so fast. Um, Thank you for coming on. Sorry we couldn't get to everyone's questions, but... Yeah, really, because believe me, I want to get to all these questions, like what two tag teams and what two single wrestlers would you brought in the WWE? Steamboat and Youngblood, they did it one time. They put them against Brower and, and, and Fuji, Torquemada, and they still tore the damn house down. That would be a good example, but I know we we could be here all damn day I know, and it, it, it's, it would be a fun day. But Christian, he asked two questions, I'm gonna, and we'll wrap up with these two questions. Who would you have given the NWA title uh, – Title reigns to instead of giving Harley Race eight runs with the belt. Any alternatives to race, in your opinion, Mike? Hmm. See, that wasn't the Chris Chenault question I thought you were going it's with. It's the but second then again, one that's going gotta... to be the last question. <laughs> Say, we got to stick to wrestling no, on this show, at least for right now. <laughs> but I, let's see. Oh, uh, you got Race so many times in there. Who would have been a good person to be the breakup of that end? You know, because of the way the NWA was, I think my my answer would be the same. Ted DiBiase would be at the top of my list, and I understand that, especially with hindsight being twenty twenty. They, to me, hindsight isn't better to try to talk up Ted DiBiase. You know, in fact, it's a little bit worse. But I think at the time baby face or heel you would have been able to pull that off i think later on as a heel i think he would have been more effective once he again the attitude came out the beard came out the black glove came on he got more edge i think he would have been more believable to people but i think he would have been a good choice to go with and i and again it this may sound weird to newer fans or fans that only knew this person in a certain way but greg valentine is another one where again for a, a depending on what you want to do for a period of time he had no problem touring he was believable he was not a massive guy you know so again the other guys could face off and he would look a little bit smaller you know the same way that flair would and he had some you know a lot of the same qualities as flair obviously not the charisma not the interview not all that sort of stuff but the interview would not have mattered so much then and him walking into your area and being a big you know badass you know, that those two guys, you know, st stick out to me. Ted DiBiase and him. Um, I'm sure there's some others. I'm trying to think from other territories who I would have trusted with it. You know, Wahoo, unfortunately, at that time, you know, in the 70s, I think you probably could have done Wahoo for a short period of time. Um, 
it, but it would have been a short period of time. I think anybody for any length in the way that Harley had it, I would go to probably one of those guys, even a slaughter or somebody like that. Again, a, a guy with some size who could wrestle a little bit, you know, a little bit heavier on the gimmick, but could make anybody look good, whether they be as small as, you know, the same size as Jimmy Valiant or smaller like Jay Youngblood or, or no matter who it was. So those guys are popping out to me, although I, I may be too mid-Atlantic, uh, uh, too heavy mid-Atlantic okay. on those. I would have gone with, well, first of all, I would have put the title on Ric Flair maybe 12 or 18 months earlier. He was ready for it. Um, and yeah. getting to the second part, like by, by the time race lost the title, as great as Harley race was as much respect as I have for Harley race, I was kind of tired of him. And when I learned, I learned right around like, I want to say maybe a week after I graduated high school or right around that time that Harley race had regained the NWA championship from Ric Flair and it was absolutely devastating to me. Ric Flair was my favorite wrestler. Uh, I wanted him to be NWA champion. But more than that, Harley Race had won the, the NWA title when I was in sixth grade. And time goes by a lot slower when you're younger. And now I'm like, I'm graduated and this guy's still champion again. I, I absolutely hated it. I, it has been explained to me that Harley Race would have been or was the perfect uh, replacement for Flair, you know, so Flair could be uh, uh, out of the championship for six months and regain it at Starcade. Uh, but I just thought everything with race had already been so played out. Like, oh my God, we're going to, we're going to do Harley race and Dusty Rhodes again in Florida. Yes, they did. Uh, I would have gone with Dick Slater in that role because Slater was good enough to be NWA champion and he had been on TV all over the place. He had been to mid Atlantic and was a star there, Georgia, uh, Florida. I think the only place he hadn't been, which was a big NWA town was Dallas and just, you know, get him over in Dallas. So you got to do it in one place. So Dick Slater ultimately is my answer. Uh, you know, at least taking one of those reins away from Harley race. Now, I think the wrestling part of Stick to Wrestling is kind of ended. We're going to have two kind of extra innings segments. The first one is the second part of Chris's question. Uh, I mean, not to go on 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 forever about this, Mike, but I think both you and I have strong opinions. UC, USC and UCLA to the Big Ten. What are your thoughts, Mike? It's wild, isn't yeah. it? It is really it, – it's crazy to me, but this is evolution, whether anybody likes it or not, this is evolution. There are a bunch of kids out there right now who have no idea that Penn State used to be independent. They have no idea that Oklahoma and Nebraska used to be a banger that Keith Jackson would call and would lock up your ABC affiliate 3.30 on a Saturday. Year. They don't remember that stuff. So unfortunately, even though I could still talk to you, and I know you can, about what tradition means and, and to see so much of it gone and to see it all go away. This is what progress is now. And we're probably going to be left at some point with two divisions, two conferences that are away from the NCAA and engulf everybody. And we're very close to it now with what's taking place here. I feel really bad for a lot of those other schools. Because USC and UCLA, being in L.A., they wag the dog. Even though they have come up terribly short 
and some may say have left, you know, let the Pac-12 down over the last couple of years. The reality of the situation is without them, you're stuck with Oregon and Washington. You have no presence in Southern California, and you have a bunch of other schools that really need those four schools, two of which are now gone. I don't know what this is ultimately going to mean for the Pac-12. I don't know what this is ultimately going to mean for the Big 12 or the ACC. But when you look at, to me, the other schools, Cal, Oregon, Arizona, Utah, Washington, all of those schools are AAU schools. As of this second, that still means something to the Big Ten. You are not going to be able to get any of the ACC schools that you want, maybe with the exception of Notre Dame, anytime soon. You know, they can commit and all that stuff, but there's nothing that can happen that's really, that looks like it's going to break any of those teams out of their deals for now. So you look at the rest of the Big 12, you look at what's left of the Pac 12, and you start wondering, okay. Why, if you're the Big Twelve, do you? If the, if you're the Big Ten, why do you also then not want Oregon and Washington? You can make a case as to why they don't want Stanford. You can make a case as to why they do want Stanford, and you can make a case if you're Stanford as to why you want to deal with any of this stuff and even continue with football in the way that you have it. When your other Olympic sports and your education is far more important than how you view your football team, but it's it to me if. The moves are going to have to be made because now that they have gone coast to coast, the SEC at some point is going to go coast to coast. And I'm sure the SEC is looking at in Oregon and looking at Nike money and looking at their rival with Washington and going, yeah, yeah, well, that would make sense because who else are you going to take on the West? You're going to take Hawaii? You're going to take UNLV? Who, who, you know, Boise State? You know, Washington and Oregon are the teams that make the most sense followed by Arizona and Utah. But the question there is how Oregon, Oregon State, Arizona, Arizona State. You know, we 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 saw it with Oklahoma State. They couldn't do jack squat with getting Oklahoma to leave. There are people that are trying right now in Washington to make sure that Washington State and Washington end up staying together. Forget it. That's not going to happen. It might Ultimately, happen. that's not going to happen. It might happen, but you know what? It's going to end up causing more of a problem than it needs to be because if the SEC doesn't want Oregon State, then they're going to have to deal with that. This, the, the, the border regents in Oregon, they're going to have to deal with that. They're going to have to find a landing spot in the Big 12. And that's where I think the networks are going to also have to step up here because, okay, you're the ones who are helping drive all this sort of stuff. What about your Arizona State? I and mean, Arizona State's a little bit of a different story, but what about your Oregon State? It's a baseball school. So now what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, what do you do with some of these other schools? And it's unfair and it's unfortunate because you look at a Vanderbilt with football and they're getting a free pass. You know, for all intents and purposes, they're getting a free pass. They're a great baseball school. A lot of great things. Great, beautiful, beautiful place. Beautiful campus. But their athletics stink. Their their facilities stink in comparison to some other places. And when you don't put any effort behind it, it's like they're cruising along. And is that fair? It's really kind of not fair. So who knows? I don't know where this whole thing's going to end. I missed a tradition and it's a whole new world, but I guess that's the way things are going to go now. You know, I, I think we disagree a little bit on the ACC and, and how easy it will be to pull out of there. 
I'll say this, Notre Dame's the only one who could pull out right now and be fine with their decision and actually be able to pay that money and not miss it. But in two, three, four years, as that money from the ACC starts to go backwards and the buyout that comes from leaving the ACC becomes fewer, boy, it's really hard if you're the, to me, if you're the Big Ten and you have these schools to not look at Duke and North Carolina and want to bring them in. You know, it's real hard for me to not look if you're the SEC and look at Clemson and Florida State, Miami and Chapel Hill and not want to bring those schools in. I mean, if and this is the other thing, too, when it comes to the Big Ten. If you bring in over the next couple of years, Duke and North Carolina and Kansas, which in Kansas is another one, Kansas is beholden with Kansas State. That seems to be a tougher one than almost anybody to break. But they're another AAU school where if they bring them in, what is the basketball contract now worth? Because you have legacy teams like UCLA and Maryland and Indiana and all these, they're all yours. Look how many teams from the Big Ten at the time they were in the Big Ten have gone to the Final Four. It will probably surprise people how many times Michigan or Michigan State has been there. So what does that mean then for their television money that they can make off of basketball and farming those out to the CBSs of the world? And again, it's there's a lot here that's going to have to be unpacked, but it is it's fascinating. I'm sorry to to dominate the whole thing here right now, but it is it is a fascinating well, yeah, thing. And to no, me. I'm glad you said what you had to say. I don't think here's if if Washington and Washington State get stuck, you know, they have to be in the same conference. And guess what? Washington is going to get stuck in the equivalent of a Mountain West conference, and you're not doing them any favors. I, I don't think the Big Ten or the SEC is taking Washington State or Oregon State. But to answer the question, what are my thoughts? Every time someone has, you know, there's been a, a conference change. The first one I remember was Arizona and Arizona State going to the Pac, well, it became the Pac-10. Uh, after that, Arkansas became part of the Southeast. Uh, Penn State went to the Big Ten. I never had a problem with any of it, including Oklahoma and Texas going to the SEC until this one. I hate this one. I And I understand why USC and UCLA did it. Pac-10 brings in a lot more television money. Excuse me, Big Ten brings in a lot more television money than the Pac-10. And UCLA was going to have to start cutting sports if they didn't step up. But that doesn't mean I I don't hate it. Um, I love having the Pac-12, and apparently the Pac-12 is not going to be at bare minimum, is it going to be what it once was, and it may not survive this. And that that's reality. If they lose Oregon and Washington – and they really might, they could be done. And, you know, the first thing I thought of was, okay, this kind of destroys the the Rose Bowl, doesn't it? And it does. And I love the Rose Bowl. (laughs) I remember in what year was it? 83 getting pulled over speeding in Vermont because I wanted to get home in time to see the Rose Bowl. So, you know, I like it. I love the tradition. And you know, normally I'm a little bit like you, Mike. You know, I, the only constant is in life is that things always change. But this is the one change I don't like, uh, and I understand. I understand a little bit why the big 
attend did it because now you're in Los Angeles. Well, okay, that's great. But do we really want to see UCLA in Minnesota? Do we really want to see USC and Nebraska? And this is what they're, you know, if you're at UCLA, this is what you're looking at constantly having to fly to the Midwest or even the East Coast for Olympic sports that no one really cares about. I hate the whole thing. Well, and that's where you have to start questioning, you know, by the time 25 rolls around, how many more shoes are going to drop? Because you can't believe that obviously they wanted the L.A. market. It's the second biggest market in the country. You want the cachet that comes with having USC and UCLA on your team and all that history that goes with that, all the money that goes with that, the donors, all that other stuff. I mean, it's why they brought in Rutgers in Maryland. You know, there were some more advantages to Maryland than there were Rutgers, but the bottom line is they wanted D.C. and they wanted New York. Yeah. They got those things. And that's the same thing with L.A. And obviously Fox knows that. But like you mentioned, what? how is this going to work here when the, the, the closest team to you is going to be Nebraska? And that's where you start to wonder – Okay, if you're the big if you're the Big 10, at what point do you maybe not look at accredited schools and realize that there this thing is becoming purely about football? Because to me, I'm surprised I want Arizona, I want Utah, I want Cal and I want Oregon. Like if I don't get anybody else, I want those four. Now you may have to take others with it. But it's like at some point that's going to happen. I mean, I can't believe that it won't happen because how else are you going to pull this off logistically otherwise? How do you pull this off for the Olympic sports and all that stuff otherwise? So there's going to have to be some sort of change. BYU, I'm not saying they're kicking themselves a little bit. You know, because obviously they in Central Florida and Cincinnati and Houston saw a great opportunity with the Big 12. And then, you know, immediately they're all, again, confidently in the mix of it. Well, if we win this, we're in, the, we're in the, we're the, the, the play for the playoff. But BYU and Utah together is something that I know a lot of people want. And I wonder where ultimately Utah is going to go. Because, again, if the, I don't know what the Pac-12 can do because you have lost Los Angeles. Like... Bring in what Air Force? Bring in Boise. To me, it's okay football wise. You bring in Boise in, in Wyoming, but Wyoming is a. I don't want to say they're a flash in the pan, but we've seen teams rise and fall. Like Boise State seems pretty consistent historically on where they've been. Wyoming's had some players, and they're trying to build it up, but like they can't replace. UCLA and USC. So even if you bring those two in and go, okay, well we'll bring in. Air Force and boy, I don't know who else you bring in. If you want to take a shot, SMU to try to take a shot back at Texas, like there's almost no, there's no combination you can put together that'll fix things. Like even if you bring it in San, San Diego State, it's not going to fix anything. So I, I, I don't know I mean, what you're, you can you're do. You're not going to make the conference better. If I was running things uh, I, on the Big Two. If I was running things in the Pac-12, I would have already contacted uh, San Diego State, big market, and now you're back in Southern California, and either Boise State or Air Force. Actually, Air Force first, but they they probably don't want to go to the Pac-12. I think, Mike, the next logical move is going to be Washington and Oregon in the Pac-10 
uh, excuse me, in the Big Ten. And like you said, it's going to be, you know, the ESPN conference and the Fox conference at the end of the day. Like that is what's coming. Boy, there, I was trying to kind of like figure it out when all this stuff was breaking and going on. You go, you got 130, 130 NCAA teams. And it's like, okay, at what point do we have basically four 24 team conferences? That would give you 96. And then you have, a gr- again, a group of others. But boy, does it, you know, Jacksonville of Alabama just came up and got dragged into conference USA. Like there are going to be some of these schools that as time goes on too, you just have to question, are they going to be able to survive playing football in the way that we have it? And do you want those teams there? I mean, I think most people probably, if you're looking at football, you don't want Iowa state, you know, anywhere near you, but they're part of the big 12. So they're going to be in the mix, but you start looking at like, Rice or Sam Houston State or some of I mean some of the Sunbelt teams even the MAC teams like what happens at that point to a MAC team are they then basically going okay let's play one double A here and play the Delawares and play the other teams like that because they play good football there but they don't have a shot in hell of ever nobody's going to leave that division and move up maybe Buffalo Buffalo would be the only one I could think of Where jumping going? out of there. But and that's the thing. So you know, again, they have advantages because the the wrestling's good, the basketball's good, the football's on the come up. They're an AAU accredited school. Like there are some things there that okay, well, okay. But then it's like it, it's Buffalo. So unless it's going to be like the ACC, who's desperately if they hang on, they're trying to add teams. Like it would be the only type of thing that would make sense. And again, what 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 do you get out of that? You know, the Toronto market isn't beating down the door to watch Buffalo Athletics. They got their own stuff to watch, including their own American college professional or their own American college exactly. team in Toronto. Well, like, like I said, I think ultimately, and I think it's going to happen like sooner than later, like before the end of this calendar year. I think uh, what I understand is that the Big Ten is kind of waiting to see what Notre Dame wants to do. And after that, they will go after Oregon and Washington. So, Mike, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show. You were an excellent guest as usual. I really appreciate that, John. And anytime you want to have me back on, I would love to talk about wrestling, this, baseball, anything. We can talk about it. We hit, we got the whole Futures game coming up. We didn't even touch on baseball. There you go. And, all right, so Mike, <laughs> thanks again. Uh, next, we will talk a little bit about our friend Richard O'Sullivan next week. We'll put that off until next week. Uh, I want to thank uh, our studio audience for being part of Stick to Wrestling. Guys, thanks for coming out. Give yourselves a hand. Very good. Give yourselves that round of applause. We'll be back next week. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. I want to thank Brian Last. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, everyone. This concludes our podcast day.